Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Let's open up our Bibles to Titus chapter 1. This morning we started in Timothy, and so we'll flip the order tonight, and we'll start in Titus chapter 1 this evening. Not going to read anything tonight that we didn't already read this morning, but we do want to have these passages in front of us and to be ready to look at them and to be thinking about them for these next few minutes. As you turn to Titus chapter 1, I'll say it's really great to see everybody tonight. I hope that you've had a good and pleasant and enjoyable afternoon. Maybe you were able to take a nap. Uh, This seems like a good nap sort of afternoon. And if you were able to get an afternoon nap, I envy you. I would have loved to have gotten an afternoon nap on a day like today. But I'm glad of the fact that you chose to wake up and to be here, to be a part of this uh, second period of worship today. And I hope that you're ready for some additional thoughts, some things to think about, about elders and overseers and shepherds over God's flock. I want to just say preemptively tonight, I sometimes say this when we have men that come and visit to uh, preach for us in gospel meetings, but I'm going to say it about myself tonight, that I'm not here tonight to tell you what to think about. But I am here tonight to give you some things that you ought to think about. I'm not going to tell you exactly this is what you have to believe and this is what you have to think, but I'm going to give you some things that I think you need to consider, some things that all of us need to weigh very carefully and some things that we want to use great discretion uh, and great wisdom in how we think about and apply these things. This evening's lesson is really just an addendum to this morning's lesson where we looked at Paul's letters to Timothy and Paul's letters to Titus to try and understand the character qualities that a man must possess in order to serve in the role of an elder. And we went through the 24 or so, depending on how you count, those 24 or so qualifications that are given for us, the things that we need to be looking for in a potential candidate. Now, we covered a lot of ground this morning, and I appreciate everybody's patience to bear with me through that entire lesson, and I appreciate the good feedback that I received for that lesson. However, as you look at that big list, it makes me think about... What are the odds that in a congregation of our size, what are the odds that every single member, when the time comes, every single member is going to put forward the same exact name with all complete 100% unanimity and agreement on those men? That these are the men that all of us 100% concur and agree, these are the guys that we believe can shepherd us. What's the odds of that happening? Well, I'm going to suggest that I think the odds of that happening are they're pretty slim. And the reason for that is, I guess there's maybe many reasons for that, but maybe the primary reason for that is, is because we don't all look at these qualifications in the exact same way. Uh, For example, one person may look at these qualifications and may take a very lenient approach where maybe he looks at this list and thinks about these ideas and says, well, yeah, I just think that we need to kind of look at this in a general sort of way. I'm just kind of looking for a for a good guy. Guy who's just a, a generally good fellow that seems like he'd be a good leader. So he spots brother so-and-so that seems like he's a pretty good fella. And in fact, he seems to have some leadership qualities. He's a manager at the job place. And he seems to do pretty good at that. He's got people under him. So he has some managerial skills. And he's a pretty good Christian overall. And so he puts his name forward. 
Even though that brother whose name he put forward has never demonstrated an aptitude to teach, he's never taught a Bible class or demonstrated in a tangible way that he is able to teach. In fact, this fellow doesn't even come to Bible class half the time because he's busy working at his job. But because he's got some managerial ability, well, surely he's able to manage the household of God. Well, me and the brother who put forward that name, we're going to disagree. I'm going to have some disagreement with that. We're not seeing those qualifications in the same way. Another person, kind of maybe over here at the opposite end of the spectrum, may take a much more restrictive approach to these qualifications. Where here's somebody who's just so rigid in how they look at these things, that in their mind, almost essentially, no one is fit to serve as an elder. And once again, me and this person, we're going to disagree. We're going to disagree about a lot of things about that. And there is the potential, because of that disagreement, there is the potential that that could create some conflict. Now, when you think about that, And when you think about the anxiety that I'm pretty sure all of us have about the likelihood of disagreement on these things, and even the potential that there could be conflict with these things, the temptation then is to say, well, you know, why do we even need to go through with all this? Why why, why even talk about this stuff? Wouldn't it just be better off if we just leave well enough alone? How about we just not do anything? There seems to be peace and we're doing okay as a congregation right now. Let's just be content to be an elderless church. That is not an option. In fact, I addressed that pretty thoroughly in lesson number one in this series. That the idea of us just being content to remain a defective, out of order, incomplete church. Number one, that is not God's pattern in the New Testament. And number two, that is not God's will. We must be about the business of developing and finding and appointing qualified men to serve as overseers even with the looming potential of disagreement. Which brings me to what I want to talk about tonight. What tends to be the source of lots of disagreement between brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is when it comes to those family qualifications. We said this morning that an elder has to be a family man, that there can be no doubt that he has to be a husband, that he has to be a father, and that his home is to serve as a as a proving ground, if you will, for his ability to be able to lead the family of God. Now, I, I, I want to say this right up front, that I am addressing these family qualification issues tonight, not because I believe they are any more important than any of the other qualifications. They absolutely are not. And I'm afraid that there are some people that the way they talk about the family qualifications, they almost act as if they are just the most important of all. They're the end-all, be-all of all the qualifications. And if that is the way that you view these qualifications, you need to hit the reset button. You need to be thinking about all of these things in equal sorts of ways. So I'm not addressing it because I think they're more important. Rather, I'm addressing the family qualifications because oftentimes these are the most polarizing. And they do tend to generate the most questions. And the reason for that, the reason they're polarizing, they generate lots of questions, I believe is because we just tend to approach the family qualifications just differently than the other qualifications. And I must tell you, I'm not exactly sure why that is. 
Because as we pointed out this morning, when we think about these lists and these qualities, first of all, these qualities that are given, they are not random. They are intentional. They are purposeful. And they all relate back to the work that he's been called to do. How this man manages his home life is going to be reflective and it's going to be preparatory for how he manages the church, how he manages God's family. Furthermore, we pointed out that these qualities, they are not about perfection. And in fact, if you are looking for a man, thinking about the family things, if you're looking for a man who's a, he's a perfect husband, and he's a perfect father, and he's got a perfect wife and perfect kids, and his home is just so perfectly perfect, then you can just stop looking right now. Because you ain't going to find that. And that's because thirdly, what these qualities are about is that they are about a proven character. That over time, this is a man who has demonstrated that he has the character of a spiritual leader as evidenced by how he has governed and ruled his home. Now, I think that we do generally a pretty good job of kind of using that lens when we look at all of the other qualifications. But I'm afraid that we're not always as consistent about that when it comes to these family qualities. And I'm going to suggest to you tonight that that is a mistake. We need to be consistent across the board in how we look at these qualities. Now somebody maybe at this point that maybe is not up to speed on this, maybe is wondering, well, well, what exactly is the controversy? Well, the controversy and the issues usually revolve around Paul's instructions that I'm going to have us just notice here in Titus chapter 1 because they're actually just right here in the same verse. In Titus chapter 1, look at verse 6. Actually, just back up. Let's get 5 and 6. Titus 1, 5 and 6. Paul says, For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, and then the list continues on. It is those two areas in verse 6. The man's relationship with his wife and the man's relationship with his children Those are the source of much debate amongst brethren. And I should go ahead and just probably say right now that if you are a note taker in the sense that you rely on stuff being on the screen, um, this is all there's going to be tonight. Not putting anything else on the screen. I'm just going to do some talking. I don't want the things that I offer this evening to come across as this is the way that it has to be and you have to accept it that way. No, just just listen to me. Take those things into consideration. Uh, But this right here, this is it. And furthermore, I'm leaving it right here with this because I want us to just keep coming back to this. I want everything that we think about, everything that we ask, everything that we consider, just keep coming back to this point. What kind of character has this man proven? When we think about the wife qualifications, when we think about the children qualifications, has he proven his character in these regards? And so let's just start with the first one there in verse 6. The husband of one wife. What does that mean? You should know that the language is exactly the same in Titus and in Timothy. The husband of one wife. What is the significance of that? Well, there's lots of ideas and positions that are put forth. Somebody, for example, may say, and the position might be, well, I think what that means is that means that this is a man who has been married one time and one time only in his entire life. 
that he is married to his first wife, he is married to his only wife, and as a result, he is the husband of one wife. And so what that means is, is that means that a man who maybe is a widower, maybe his wife has been deceased, maybe she's been deceased for some years, and so he then finds another woman that he can lawfully marry, well, sorry brother, that means by marrying that other woman, that means that you now have two wives. Or maybe here's another guy. Maybe here's a man who has a scriptural divorce. He has scriptural grounds to put his wife away. She has committed sexual immorality. And then he decides to scripturally remarry a woman that he has the right to marry to. Well, once again, brother, sorry. But we can't accept you as an elder because you have two wives. And it just all comes back to, hey, it says he has to be the husband of one wife. And of course, that doesn't even begin to open up Pandora's box about, you know, what if his wife dies? Then what? Does he have to step down? You know, he's now a single man. He doesn't even have a wife. Now he has zero wives. And so that opens up a whole can of worms. And so that's position number one that I know many folks hold to that particular idea about this quality. Another person, though, might say, well, you know, I believe that this quality mentioned here about the husband of one wife, I think really just what it is, is it's a prohibition against polygamy. That that's really what's being emphasized here. That this man needs to be married to just one woman at a time. Now, you might be thinking, and I used to kind of think this too, oh, come on, polygamy? You know, that's, that's not even an issue here. I mean, that's like an issue in like, you know, one state in the whole United States. Why would Paul need to make a distinction between polygamy and monogamy? Well, to be fair, we need to remember that these documents that we are reading, these New Testament documents, they were not originally written to us in 2019 America. In the days when those letters were originally written, there was lots of polygamy. Absolutely there was. Polygamy was rampant everywhere in the world. In fact, right now, you can probably think of some heroes of faith in the Bible. Some Jewish men who were polygamists. I'm thinking about Jacob. I'm thinking about Solomon. And I'm thinking about all the problems that come along with being a polygamist. And so somebody says, maybe this qualification was given to tell those Christian men living in the first century that if they want to be elders, hey buddy, it needs to be one man and one woman. It needs to be that kind of arrangement. You can't be having all kinds of wives. Well, can I just actually say about that particular position that I don't think that there were any polygamists in the church at that time. I think that if there were polygamists in the first century, I believe that they first had to learn that that's not God's will. That that does not fit with the covenant of Jesus Christ. I believe they would have had to repent of that before they even become a Christian. So I'm not convinced that the reason this is in here is to tell us something about polygamy. But that is a position that some people take the meaning of, this husband of one wife. But then over here, here's maybe a third person who says, well, you know... I don't really think it's addressing all the the legalities of of a previous marriage. I don't think he's really trying to address the the number of marriages that this guy has had. In fact, I think those issues are actually settled elsewhere in Scripture for somebody. I believe what this is talking about is this is talking about the character of that man. That maybe this qualification is wanting us to look at his marriage and look at his commitment 
and his faithfulness and his devotion to his wife. And so as a result, maybe that person would then remind us that, you know, that literal translation of that phrase there in Titus chapter 1 verse 6, it's not the husband of one wife. The literal translation, if you were to just be reading a, you had a literal English translation, the literal translation is the man of one woman. Or maybe better stated in our language, that this man is to be a one woman man. And I will tell you, me just letting it be known where I am, that that's what I believe the qualification is talking about. The qualification is wanting us to ask, is he a one-woman man? That's the question that when we probe it, that's what's going to reveal the kind of character that he has. Because a one-woman man is a man who's going to have been faithful to his wife. He's not been with other women. He's not looking at other women. He's not cheating. And as a result, his trust is being called into account. No. He's a man that's above reproach in that way. And as a result, he is totally devoted to his woman. He is hopelessly devoted to her. She knows it. Others know it. We can see it. We can observe that he is committed to that one woman. I believe that that is the thrust of what this qualification is calling us to be looking for. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that I want to just dismiss these first two positions altogether. Because think about it. First of all, if a man has been remarried, whether that's due to death or more specifically, if that's due to a divorce, well, I want to know about that. I'm going to have some questions about that. I I want to know, hey, what were the circumstances surrounding that? I want to be sure that his divorce was lawful in the eyes of God. That it was on a scriptural basis. Was he above reproach in all of those dealings? Was he truly an innocent party when that happened? Because the truth is, when you start asking folks sometimes about things like that, what you come to find is that sometimes the person who is the innocent party maybe wasn't exactly all that innocent to begin with. And so I want to probe about that. I want to pick, I want to put that under the magnifying glass. I want to understand about that. I want to understand if maybe his character in other areas now needs to be called into question. And of course, talking about that second position about the polygamy thing, it really just ought to go without saying that a polygamist cannot be an elder. You want to know why? Because a polygamist cannot be a Christian. So that almost is just kind of sin, kind of common sense. And so when I come to these few words here in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, the husband of one wife, what I want to know is I just want to know, hey, brother, have you been faithful to your wife? Have you been loyal to her both sexually and in your duties and responsibilities to her as a husband? Have you proven yourself to be a man that she can trust? Because that then helps us know whether we can trust you. You see, this is about what kind of man he is. Now, having stated that, you may disagree with that position. You may be firmly over here in camp number one, or in camp number two, or in camp number four, or five, or some other derivative of this that I haven't even thought of. But what I'll simply ask you to do is I'll ask you, first of all, to consider which of those approaches is going to best address... His character. Which of those approaches is going to just drill down to the main thing here? 
And if you come to the end of that and your conviction is still, well, I'm still, I'm still over here on this, then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Number one, whatever standard that you're going to apply, you need to first of all apply that to yourself. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, all that stuff about judge not that you be not judged. One of the reasons he says that is he says, because the measure of judgment that you use on others, that's the judgment that's going to be used on you, at least to some degree. So apply that to yourself first and foremost. Secondly, whatever that conviction is that you have, you then apply that standard to whoever's name that you might be comfortable putting forward to serve as an elder. Don't violate your conscience. Don't put forward a man's name who you, you, you just can't in good conscience do. And then thirdly, when the time comes, you need to be willing to accept that there are others who may hold a different conviction about that. Maybe the point here in all of this is that you and I, we need to be careful with this thinking of, you know what, my interpretation of these five verses is worth fighting over. I don't believe it is worth fighting over. And I don't believe that we will fight over these five words if we have some integrity in how we approach these character qualities. Now, what about the other half of this family equation? You look again at Titus 1 verse 6, husband of one wife. Having faithful children. What does that mean? Well, how much time you got? Call your favorite preacher. We could bring in all kinds of ideas this evening. Everybody has a position on this. Let's just start with the debate that sometimes occurs over just the meaning of the word children. You know, how many children is this talking about? Well, usually, I can tell you how this discussion usually goes. What happens is, is we pull out our Greek lexicon. And we look up that word children, and we find it's the word technon. And we then talk about how that word is used in different ways in different places depending upon the context. And so one person says, well, I believe that that word children, it must mean two or more children. It must mean a plurality of children. And maybe they would even offer that. Well, it just seems like there's wisdom in having a multiplicity of children because you're going to be dealing with a multiplicity of different personalities, which by the way, I'll just say, that's really not an argument for two or three children. Really what that's an argument for is for 125 children. That's how many different personalities you'd be dealing with. But that's really kind of beside the point. So somebody says it's, it's, it has to be that. It has to be two kids or more. But then somebody else over here says, well, I tell you what, if you look at some other passages where that word is used, maybe just stay in the context of Paul's writings. If you look in 1 Timothy 5, same exact author, Paul talks there about the widow indeed. Here is a woman, verse 10, 1 Timothy 5, who has brought up children. And we might say, well, you know what, we don't limit that to a woman who has only brought up two or more children. No, we say that even if she's brought up just one child, then she meets that qualification of being a widow indeed. She has a child. She has children. Well, I'll just say to you, I'm I'm not going to belabor this child-children debate because I do think that that was covered pretty extensively a couple weeks ago in the Wednesday night class. I'll just simply say that for me, if I am going to be consistent with other passages then that word children, then it can mean one or more. Now, once again, you believe differently about that? If you believe that it has to be two, has to be three, or whatever number that you want to say, number one, be willing to study about that. Be open to hearing the ideas of others, the things that I've suggested this evening. 
But then secondly, even if you've kind of come to a conviction about that, you then need to act according to your conscience. And then you need to allow for the possibility that others are going to see that differently. What I will say, though, as we talk about this child-children debate, is that what happens is is that many times we get lost in the weeds on determining, is this one child, is it multiple children? And we end up just losing sight of what is the purpose of this qualification. Is it about, we got to nail down some specific exact number? Or are we talking about a man's character? Because I thought that's what we're talking about here. Now, since we are talking about this, and since we're right here, can I say a quick word about something that I heard a person say one time. They didn't say it to me. But I heard someone one time say something about taking the safe course. And they were actually saying it in regards to this one child, two or three children question. The safe course, this is the idea and this is the approach that looks at a man and says, well, you know what, here's a guy who he's got a lot going for him. Here's a guy, he is a godly man. He's above reproach, great reputation, just bang, bang, bang down the list. Here's a guy who's a peaceful man. He's not self-willed. He's not quick-tempered. He's got peacefulness in him. Here's a man who is a capable man. Man, he teaches some great Bible classes. Here's a sensible man. He's a caring man. He's, he's good in all those areas. On top of that, he's a devoted husband to his wife. Or he, yes, a devoted husband to his wife. He's got excellent character all the way around. This guy looks like he's a lot, but, but he just has one child. And so despite the fact that all of the evidence suggests that this man is qualified to serve as a shepherd, well, we're not going to appoint him because that's the safer course. Can I just say, and I'm asking you to listen very carefully to my words right here, neither of the texts, neither in Timothy or in Titus, neither of the texts instruct us to take measures so that we do not appoint unqualified men. What these texts tell us to do is to appoint qualified men. And let me be very clear as to what I mean by that. I am not saying that we should appoint unqualified men. Please do not leave here today and misquote me. What I am saying is that we need to look at these texts from the standpoint that Paul wrote them from. And that is that you need to be looking to find men. Some people look at these lists, and they just look at it with the big red X. They're just looking to look around. Who can I disqualify here? And that's just completely tunnel vision. I'm just looking to disqualify everybody. That's not what these passages are about. These passages are about finding a guy who is qualified. And I'm going to tell you the danger in all that. In an elderless church, and that is what we are, The danger with always just kind of falling back and saying, well, you know what, that would be the safer course, is that we run the risk of just eliminating everybody from serving as an elder. Think about it. There's always going to be something that we're not going to be 100% confident and sure about when we start going through all of those various character qualities. And I guess then that the safe course would be to just, well, let's just not appoint anybody. Well, now what have we done? Well, we've done at least a couple of things. Number one, now we have inadvertently made every man in the congregation an elder. Do you understand what I mean by that? Because now every man has the exact same level of authority, 
The same level of of voting power, the same level of say in those business meetings, which I will remind you, is just a collection of unqualified men trying to do work that we are not qualified to do. And then secondly, even worse, is that we're just right back to where we started. We are an incomplete, defective, out-of-order church. Why? Well, because one or two or however many, they opted for the safer course. My question is, is that really the safe course? Is that really that safe? Don't misunderstand me. I want to be careful with God's Word. I would like to hope that in the five plus years that I have been here as the evangelist, I will have proven that to you. That in my character, that I'm somebody that wants to be careful with the Word of God. But I'm going to tell you this, there is no virtue in being so dogmatic and so hyper-conservative that we just end up doing nothing. We handcuff ourselves instead of trusting God. Trusting Him when we are sincerely trying to do what is right. Trying to just do His will. And I'd like to think that's what we want. Sometimes with that trust, just man, it's just not as strong as it needs to be. In fact, really what I'm suggesting this evening we think about how we approach all of this, is I'm suggesting that we come at this from the standpoint of examining a man's character, and what I'm trying to lay out tonight is that that actually is not being loose and lenient and liberal with the qualifications. That's actually a much more stringent and more thorough examination into that man's life. That's a whole lot more deep than just running down doing the checklist thing. Hey, can he teach? Check. Is he married to his first and only wife? Check. Does he have multiple kids and all of them are faithful Christians? Check. Boom, boom, boom. Right down the list. He's an elder. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to test a man's character. We're not trying to just check off a bunch of boxes. Which brings me to that word there. We got past the children thing. What about the faithful part of it? What does that mean? Faithful children. He's probably the one that creates the greatest amount of heartburn for folks. And it's probably been that way, I'm sure, since long before I was ever even upon this earth. What does that term faithful this mean? mean? Well, tonight I'm using the New King James Version. I've been trying to use different translations in the lessons that I've presented on this. Other translations, though, don't use the word faithful. Other translations use the word believing children. Or that his children are believers. I should tell you, first of all, that that term believers, if that's what your Bible uses, uh, that's a poor translation. Because the Greek word pistos here, it's not a noun. It's an adjective. It's a descriptive word. And so, what is it then? Faithful? Is it believing? What exactly does that mean? Well, first thing we probably notice about this is that this is only in Titus's letter. Timothy's letter does not use any of this kind of language. Timothy's list talks about the children being submissive and respectful and under their father's control. They're obedient to him. and There's really just not any ambiguity at all in the Timothy passage. But what does this mean in Titus' letter? Does it mean that they are faithful to their father? That they are loyal and they are obedient to him? Or does it mean that they are faithful to God? That they're faithful to Christ? And that we're talking about a child who is an obedient Christian. Now, I'll say this, if it's the latter, if it means faithful to God, and if it means an obedient Christian, 
Then what that does is that then, of course, opens up just the smorgasbord of questions that we have. If it means baptized believer, well, how many of his kids need to be baptized? Do all of them need to be baptized? What if some of them are still young and they're still not even of age of accountability? If, if two out of three of them have been baptized, is that good enough? Or, you know, what about a child who is a Christian and who was faithful, but later on in their life, when they leave their father's house and get off on their own and they're an adult, they become an apostate. They become a prodigal and now they're living in sin. What about that? Or what about, what about a late, unexpected child? Here's a guy who he's raised some older kids and raised them to know the Lord and love the Lord. Maybe they're all baptized, obedient Christians. But now, now there's this unexpected pregnancy. And now maybe here a little bit later in his life, they're kind of starting all over with that. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that he's not qualified? Does that mean he now has to wait 13, 14, 15 years until that kid obeys the gospel to either be appointed for the first time or maybe he had to step down and now he's got to wait to be reappointed? What about all that? Listen, those are not a bunch of hypothetical scenarios. Those are legitimate situations. I know people who fall into every single one of those categories. And they engender some very legitimate questions. How do we answer all of them? Well, I'm just simply going to say and just keep leaning on what I've leaned on all day today in these lessons. That's just going to come down to His proven character. Has He demonstrated His ability as a spiritual leader in his home. Now somebody is probably going to press me to give an answer. Josh, you still didn't answer. Where are you at on that faithful? What does it mean? I remember having a conversation just a few days ago about this, and I said I was just going to kind of lay out all of the options, and I was told, well, you you, you got to have a position. And so I'll tell you my position on that. If you push me on it, I'm going to tell you that at this time, I am most persuaded that it is talking about the kid's relationship to their father. And I will just very quickly tell you why that is my conviction. First of all, I would ask, who is the subject in Titus chapter 1? Is it God or is it that man? Well, clearly it's the man who's being talked about there. He is the subject of consideration here. Are they faithful to Him? Are they trustworthy? Are they dependable, reliable, and loyal to Him? In fact, you should know that that Greek word More than 80% of the time in the Bible, that is how that word is used. And so it's used a lot in that connection. That's not some authoritative thing that proves anything, but it's something that certainly is worth thinking about. I think that that understanding best harmonizes then with what's said in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4 about how these kids are submissive to their father. They're under their father's control. Secondly, that verse there in Titus chapter 1 verse 6 is one of those this... Not this sentences. And there's lots of those kinds of sentences in the Bible. That they are faithful, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. I believe the contrast there about kids who are faithful to their father, how they are obedient to their father's rules and they follow him, I believe that that is a direct opposition to these kids who are just out partying and they're rebellious and they're wild and they're out of control. For me... That's the much more logical way of understanding that verse. Now, there's lots more arguments that could be made, and I'm not going to do that tonight. I could go into all kinds of stuff about the Greek. In fact, I'm sick of looking at this Greek stuff. It's almost made me sick. I don't want to get into that tonight because I certainly don't want to be involved in all this wrangling about words. I don't think it's necessary. Because again, I believe this is talking about, it's talking about a man. 
A certain kind of man. That it's talking about the character of this man. I believe the Lord wants us to look at Him. Yes, we're going to have to notice some things about His kids and His relationship to them. But we're, we're wanting us to, the Lord's wanting us to look, how has He fathered His children? Which means then that the question should not be, are all of His kids baptized believers? No, I believe the question should be, is He proven in His character and how He has raised His children? What has He shown and demonstrated to us? Now, somebody, probably like three minutes ago, probably thought to themselves, Whoa, Josh, hold on! Talk about this is what your position is, what you think faithful children means. Are you suggesting that a man can be an elder and none of his kids even be Christians? Nope. That is not what I am suggesting. In fact, I would be probably very vehemently opposed. I would have some very serious concerns about a man being appointed to serve in that role and he has not been able to lead any of his children to Jesus Christ. If he has not been successful in convicting any of his kids about the gospel, how in the world can he be expected to successfully convict the gainsayer? As Titus talks about there in verse 9. You see, this is not merely an issue of whether his kids are faithful Christians or how many of his kids are faithful Christians. No. His character now is being called into question in my mind. If he can't lead this child to the Lord, I'm going to probably start thinking, you know what? I don't think he meets the qualification about being able to teach. He hasn't been able to teach his kids. He hasn't been able to teach other people. And in fact, I'm probably starting to think, I don't even know that he's necessarily above reproach now. It's going to cause me to question and maybe have some doubts about him. It's going to call some of those things and it maybe impugned his character. And of course, the same goes for all of those other questions that we ask. What about a late-in-life child? What about somebody who adopts a child? They're trying to do what James 1.27 says, and they adopt this child and rescue a child out of a terrible situation. Or what about a child who leaves the Lord as an adult and go off into apostasy? I don't believe this is a simple, black and white, checklist sort of procedure. We'd like for it to be that way. It's not the way it is. I believe the Lord's asking us to look at His character and to look deeply. Has He shown evidence of being able to lead His family to the Lord? In fact, I'll just say this kind of very briefly about the issue of a prodigal child. Lord willing, next Sunday night, I'm going to just address that question entirely in Q&A night about an adult child that is no longer faithful to God and how that plays into the elder qualifications. But when it comes to the idea of a prodigal child, what I want to know about that man is I want to know what's that relationship like? Is he handling that the way a shepherd should handle that? Is he doing right by that erring child? Because listen, if he just accepts that child, like nothing has changed and everything's hunky-dory and we still get together for all of our family get-togethers and we don't ever say a single word about their erring condition, that's a problem. That's a problem. That's a serious problem. He's not doing right by that child. He's not showing the heart of a shepherd. But if on the other hand, if that man and how he treats that erring child, he demonstrates that there is a change in the relationship. He doesn't let them think that they are okay. And he earnestly pleads with that child. And he's made just all kinds of efforts to reach and to rescue that sheep who has gone astray. That guy, that guy for me, is worthy of giving a second look. And I'll say again, I know what we want. 
What we want is we want some metric. We want some rubric. We like that. We like being able to quantify everything. We like five steps in the plan of salvation. Five acts of worship. Threefold work of the church. Everything's just distilled down to these exact procedures. And man, we just bang, 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 just go right through them like that. But we don't always have that privilege to do that. In fact, we don't even do that with the other qualities. You ever thought about that? I think we're kind of inconsistent about that. What about that quality about that he's, he's not greedy for gain? That he's not a covetous person? Okay, how do we measure that? What are we going to do? Are we, are we going to just look at the man and do this? Look at his character overall? Or what do we need to start requiring? Okay, hey buddy, I need you to bring your tax returns in. I'm going to need to see how much money's in your bank account. I'm going to need to see a list of all the things that you've purchased in the last year. That way we'll know whether you're covetous or not. Or what about when it comes to his ability to teach? How do we measure that? Well, if we go this quantifying route, okay, he needs to have at least converted you know, five people in the last year. He needs to have had ten private Bible studies with people. He needs to have taught two adult Bible classes. That's not what we do. We look at his character. We look at him as a, that guy. That guy's got the ability to teach. And what that means is, is that means that when we look at those things, what we are doing is we're making a judgment call. And that is what this comes down to. There's some of these areas we're just going to have to make a judgment call. You're talking about the difference between a man being married or not married. Okay, not a lot of judgment that needs to happen there. That's pretty clear. That's pretty objective. There's some of these areas where we're going to have to make a judgment call. And that is, I believe, what the Bible just shows us in a number of different places. And what the Bible teaches us is that what we need is we need discernment. And we need wisdom. And in fact, we need to be asking God for wisdom. I, I, I was sitting there when Brother Drain was leading the prayer. And he prayed in that prayer, Lord, help us as we go through this process of thinking about elders. He said, give us wisdom in this. I, I wanted to say amen like right there in the middle of the prayer. Because that's exactly the only other thing I do have on the slides this evening. Because that's what we need to be doing. Is we need to be asking the Lord for wisdom and for discernment and how we look at and how we assess these things. And the good news about that is, is that the Lord has promised that He will give if we will ask. James 1 verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not with doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Because he's a double-minded man and he is unstable in all of his ways. We will beseech the Lord earnestly and sincerely. Lord, I want wisdom. I want wisdom personally. I want wisdom for all of us as a congregation. As we think about these things and as we near a time of looking out amongst ourselves, give us wisdom. You think God's just going to say no to that? No, you can't have any wisdom to do my will. Of course not. God is going to give. In fact, the text says He will give it richly, generously, and liberally. We're going to need that discernment in order to make some of those judgment calls. Now, let me just say as I close here this evening, that my desire tonight is not for everybody or necessarily even anybody to hold my particular convictions on these specific qualities. 
I do think that some of the just general principles that we've talked about tonight in between the qualifications, I am going to ask you to very seriously think about those things and how those things need to be implemented into our thinking. But I'm not looking to recruit anybody to how I think about these things. It's just not even necessary. I'll just simply say what I've said a couple of times already. Be willing to hear some other thoughts out. Be willing to consider what another brother or another sister might have to offer about these things. And if you are the person who offers some of those ideas, you need to be willing to hear what that other person has to say right back to you. And let's all be willing and open-minded and to consider and then to be ready to accept that. You know what? I don't have to have everybody to see everything exactly the way that I see these things. I believe the Lord will help us. and I believe if we'll ask Him to help us, He will most certainly do that. And He'll do it in a rich and abundant and generous sort of way. Now, once again, I almost don't know how to extend the invitation at the conclusion of a lesson like this. Because again, we're talking about a lot of in-house matters. And if I'm being totally honest with you, most of the time I kind of have in mind what I want to say to segue into the invitation, but I really didn't even get time to think about what I wanted to say for the invitation this evening, uh, because uh, this particular lesson, these lessons today have been uh, heavy on my mind uh, for not just the last week, but for the last several months, and wanting to be able to say and articulate things in the right way, and to uh, have those hopefully be received in right spirit, uh, in the same spirit in which they were given. Having said all of that, though, uh, you, you know, I'm looking around the room and I don't see any strangers here. You know what this time is about. Set aside this time, the conclusion of every hour of worship, to offer an opportunity for anybody who is outside of Jesus Christ to get in to Jesus Christ. He is the Good Shepherd. He is the author of our salvation. He is the Great Redeemer. He wants you to be in His family. He wants you to be a part of the family of God. And that's not to say that God's family is we're all perfect and we've got it all figured out and we're just uh, all perfectly harmonious on every single thing all of the time, but it does mean you're going to be a part of a group of people who are trying. When it's all said and done, we're trying to help each other to go to heaven. And that's my desire and I hope that's your desire as well. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, all things are ready for that to happen tonight. Water is warm, there's garments in the back, myself, others are ready to assist and to help in making that happen tonight, and you can leave here tonight one of God's children. If you are a child of God, brother or sister, there is sin in your life, that idea of being above reproach, that maybe that can't be said about you because you're harboring sin. You need to repent, and you need to know that you're amongst people who want you to repent, your Lord wants you to repent, and we want to help you to serve the Lord in a better way from this day forward. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation in any way, maybe you just have concerns or questions or stuff you need to talk about and get off your chest, this is a good time to make that known. Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.